and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Professor Jay Leiter, who is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Director of the Sustainability Studies Program at Creighton University. Jay Leiter is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Director of the Sustainability Studies Program at Creighton University. He teaches courses on communication research and the intersection of culture and communication in everyday life. His research questions how culture influences communication and how people make decisions about the community in which they live. He also teaches a course in sustainability, which is modelled after Jesuit teaching practices and discernment. Most recently, Jay is working with colleagues from Creighton University to develop a socio-ecological model of the Sandhills by combining ethnographic interviews of ranchers and ranching families with ecological data. Jay and his family are also trying to coax the land they live on to resemble a restored prairie. Jay Leiter, welcome to Lives. Thank you. It's great to be here. Here we are, sitting down, mm-hmm. having a chat, a couple of microphones. And that to me feels like communication. Mm. But that phrase, I think, conjures up a much more expansive, a much more robust set of meanings and practice for you. I just want to set the stage a little bit by uh, asking you to perhaps explain what those meanings look like for you. Mm -hmm. Well, it is communication. Um, For answering this question, it's sort of important to realize that there are such a wide range of theories and perspectives about the nature of human communication and that range sort of maps onto what occurs in everyday life and everyday human interaction, that there's, there's so much to even start to sort of scrape the surface of. Um, in communication studies, we try to get students to really think about many different perspectives to try to understand the complexity of human communication from a range of ways of thinking about it. And they historically come from, you know, Greek and Roman traditions and, and um, classical rhetorical studies in the you know, early 1900s, but up until the 50s and 60s, it focused in terms of education on public speaking and maybe a little uh, PR. And so the social science of communication studies is 60 or 70 years old and um, really steals from a bunch of different tra- traditions. Um, and I won't say much more about that, except to say that that's an important way that I think about it, because the, the way I think about communication sort of comes from fields in sociolinguistics, linguistic anthropology, what communication folks now would call language and social interaction. And it's a, there's a number of different subdisciplines in that field. Um, and for me, the thing I really think about, as you mentioned earlier, was the ways in which our cultures, our cultural ways of being are expressed through, um, shown, put forth, in, in deeply cultural ways. And then that in turn has an influence on the way we understand our social groups, our, our places as individuals and communities. And so I'm primarily interested in that, the intersection of the influence or mutual influence on communication and culture. But the number of things that are studied, for instance, in my department go beyond that. Uh, 
Maybe from a definitional sense, though, I think the question you're trying to get at is, how do I think of it? And I think of it as largely the, the one way that we know who we are, who we are to others, how we're supposed to relate to others. Um, and it's the manifestation of all the things that we try to do with other humans is to express ourselves through communication. You know, those are all things that we're doing all of the time. And I'm interested in sort of the everydayness of that. I think it's powerful and yet so simply stated the part of what you're interested in in terms of communication and its its intersection with culture and how they mutually influence each other, that you're getting to the heart of who we are, who we think we are as, a, as an individual, as I sit here now thinking about who I am, who I'm perceived as by others around me and how I'm understood. I'm wondering if I could invite you to give tangible examples of what this might mean so that listeners can follow along. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a suburb of Kansas City and I used to hunt and fish with my father and we'd, we'd hunt in north central Missouri. And there was a scene that I just loved as a kid and that was 5.30 in the morning. We're in a kitchen. There's, there's a ton of tables uh, folded out and car tables and local uh, ranchers, farmers and their family. There's uh, literally six or eight coffee pots running. And we were just sitting there in our coveralls and our sock feet waiting to go out to go hunting and it was freezing. And, and I just loved that scene. I loved that I could be a part of it. I didn't feel like I was a, a, a native member, so to speak, but I just, I liked the way people spoke. I liked the way people, what they talked about, how they related to each other, what they thought was funny. And I remember one year, it was probably 15 or 16, I had to get back to uh, Kansas City, suburb of Kansas City. And here's the part where I lie. I always said I was going to a Beastie Boys concert. And I think that that probably wasn't true because I found the ticket stub and it wouldn't have been the same years. But I probably was going to like a little community building in my hometown to go watch one of my high school friends play in their punk rock band. And I could feel myself as we made the trip um, west and south changing. I could feel my sense of who I thought I was and how I was going to be in these places changing. And I actually did remember thinking, if I got these people together and these people together, something strange and awkward would happen. But I was able to sort of navigate those two scenes. And I, I, I knew this as a kid. I, I, I had this sense about the world. And so when I went to graduate school and the area of study that I studied is called the Ethnography of Communication, I felt like I was reading something. I felt like I was going home. I felt like it was explaining to me that phenomenon of these different scenes and identities and relationships. And I wanted to know more about how that works. And by the way, we all do that. So we're all, you know, I tell students all the time, you know, you're competent speakers and communicators and competent members of your communities already. You know these because you've been socialized that way. You've learned the culture, what we what we struggle with is when we find ourselves in a scene or a situation with people who see the world differently and act uh, differently, and they do that both through the expressions of communication, but also the sort of cultural premises that are holding up those practices for everyday interaction. And so I really wanted to figure that out to the best I could, you know, to some degree I have a lot of, lot of learning yet to do. I'm not sure I know much, but you know, that's the kind of inquiry, the kind of curiosity that I felt like I was figuring out. It's in the range of examples that someone might experience if they go from one job to another job, or if they go from their job 
to a social group that they have outside of work. The experience they have with those two different places, scenes, cultures, yeah. groups of people, they navigate them differently, especially if they're new to those environments. Yeah, for sure. And culture sort of uh, largely sits at the background of our of our recognition, of our awareness, because we operate largely with an efficiency. These are some sort of communication philosophy or philosophy of language, but there's an efficiency in human communication and it's developed because we are socialized in particular codes, particular cultural codes, and we learn them and deploy them without thinking. And when we find ourselves in a place that comes into contact with uh, not just different terminology, but literally, and I love that phrase, ways of being, we, we have to reorient ourselves. And so the sort of cultural project for the individual is figuring out what are the ways of doing things here? What are the, what are the expectations, the norms, the identities, the roles? And then from a community perspective, that it's, it's, sort, of the, it's sort of a socialization about what we value, what we care about, what we uh, like or dislike. And so I've had folks ask me, you know, cultural questions about large scale sort of geopolitical or national identities. And there are scholars that study those things. And I I try to understand that as well, but um, I find there's much more variability within the day-to-day. And so the the trick in teaching this subject to students is to get them to see culture in everyday things and how that is the way. And so they do projects where kind of put them in situations like you're talking about. Um, People know this intuitively. I'm not saying things that people, you know, that's sort of the, that's sort of the downfall of the subject is that it, it, it doesn't strike people as, um, you know, new thinking, new ideas. But I think in terms of the practical way to try to investigate and understand what's going on is when you do enter a scene like that, what do they say? In what order? What happens after that? Who expresses a problem or a rule? You know, if you paid attention to the communication, you can figure out an awful lot about the community. You are a middle-aged white man. Sure. So that, that's my way to set the scene to, to invite you to talk a little bit about a specific project to illuminate what you've mm-hmm. been discussing. So I mentioned the Winnebago tribe. Mm-hmm. Share a little bit more about what that project was, mm-hmm. what it was trying to achieve, and how you went about that process. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned a lot more about uh, that and people that live in that community than, than I was able to, to give in return by a long shot. And that's the case a lot of times with work with indigenous communities um, to the extent that, you know, I was able to um, do some things that felt like it offered some, ex- you know, some useful, meaningful uh, giving. Uh, I did that and that's, that's another story. But so I just, I'm thoughtful about any kind of work with indigenous communities. Um, but the project was that there were some public health research going on in um, Winnebago at the college there, a little priest tribal college. And the public health researchers knew that um, this is a designated USDA food desert and there was going to be the construction of a new facility for food that was going to offer some more healthy eating opportunities for people in the community, mostly at the, tri- at the college, but there's a lot of interaction in that community with LPTC. So for lack of a better understanding, it was sort of set up as a, as a pre post test sort of thing where they were going to try to take some initial um, data about the health of the community and then um, maybe spend some time after that eating facility was there and see if that had some impact on the community. So I think it's a smart idea. 
there's a long history and reason for problems like this, but you know, the, I'll just put it that the community members weren't super keen on participating, um, for all sorts of reasons, not because it was a bad study design. So I was asked to come in and I said, well, you know, I'm not sure what I have to offer here. I, I'm not, I'm not interested in here's our message, you know, translate it to another community. I said, you know, maybe what I could figure out is you have a way of talking about food health and obesity, and maybe we could figure out how they talk about food health and obesity. What, what are their ideas of the concerns and the problems and the, you know, the things that might be connected to this subject that might give us some insight about how a study design like this could be improved. And there was a time when I was doing this work where that was sort of a question I had. If you were going to to do something with a community, what would you need to know about them communitively and culturally before you began? And then how would that knowledge shape how you would interact in the first place? And that's sort of that's sort of at the background of all of the work that I'm interested in. So I was First, able to make a connection and had a person working with me from the community to help me sort of navigate this, the situations and scenes. My identity was completely obvious and suspect, rightfully so. You know, another person from another university being there, I was, I'm aware of that history. And uh, so trying to be brave, but also be sensitive about that. And then um, I also tried to figure out how to you know, say what I'm doing may help with this difficult translation between Western medical discourses of health and, 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 and obesity to traditional native ones. When I started interviewing folks, the answer to the question would, you know, about food, tell me about foods, they would start talking about funerals. Now, this is a key point about the study. When you're learning about another culture, I could have disregarded that and said, well, they're not answering my question, you know, but I, but, but, I, the way I was trained was, well, figure that out. What at the end of the day we were able to kind of do was to communicate how much food is not only a, a part of ceremony, funerals, birthdays, powwows, naming ceremonies, and the way that it is ingrained into a, a holistic understanding of identity and nature and how these things from an indigenous perspective and in particular the Winnebago perspective are, are not mutually exclusive categories. We're able to gather quite a number of stories that just talked about sort of the importance of food in a traditional sense. And it, it really sort of it's defied some expectations because even unhealthy food was to them food. And there's also in the history of, you know, uh, these communities, it's true that, you know, there's a different developing over the last 400 years or so about, you know, things like nutrition because access to food and poverty and all of the issues that went with that make that a much more difficult um, set of notions. And we, we tried to then change the project a little bit so that it was translational from a public health perspective to, you know, understand from a traditional sense what even the questions about food would, would spark in the minds of the participants that would, that would, sort of misshape what the public health researchers were trying to understand. And at the same time, we were able to try to communicate some of these notions to some of the health agencies that were doing diabetes prevention work about, you know, using more traditional ways of talking about food to incorporate it into their lessons. I'm thinking about you as a researcher. I'm thinking about the rigors of scientific method 
paying attention to some of these uh, requirements around objectivity. And yet I can't help but feel that you must have been poured in subjectively as a mm-hmm. human being into these experiences. So was there a distinction between those two roles? Or frankly, can there be? And, and did you find yourself sort of overlapping between being just Jay Leiter, a human being, and mm-hmm. Jay Leiter, the academic? For me, no. Um, and I do work in a tradition that relieves the burden of objectivity by understanding that as a researcher, your, and I'll, I'll use the word data here, your, your participation is part of the data that you cannot create from an ethnographic perspective, a true observer role, and that your identity in that situation is absolutely part of what you need to recognize. And then your contributions to the interactions are part of the scene that need to be analyzed. And there's a good example of that, um, some other work that I've done um, more recently, but there's that. I do view this work as translational and there are limits to its power. I don't profess to ever say I objectively know a culture. I don't profess to say I objectively can be a member of a culture, but I do think that there are some practical learning that can ease the social interactions and create spaces for some kind of mutual sharing that doesn't require the the diminishment of one or the other or uh creating some you know sort of third practical way and i'm not i'm not i'm not totally sure i mean this is where this is why i used to feel like i knew a lot and i as i get through this life uh i do i do struggle with feeling like i know much of anything um i can point to moments like that where i thought something something good came of that and then i can immediately point to its limits but um back to your question about sort of identity no it 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 is absolutely necessary to try to understand where you're coming from because i'm the instrument i'm bringing my own cultural worldview to this and so i have to understand to the best of my ability whether you know what are the ways that that is uh, infusing some meaning on some you know communicated behavior, some communication action, some activity in a way that is, is, is shaping um, what might be their view of it. You're teaching students. What are the typical frustrations and challenges students have to be guided through? What do they experience as they, as they journey through this? And one that springs to my mind might be the ethics of this. I could imagine being a student and really struggling with understanding what are the ethics of being this third party mm-hmm. in another cultural situation. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I think that's true of all research methods, all social science research methods, sort of dealing with the institutional power of higher education, of research methodologies, of, you know, positions of privilege and all that. Um, those are questions that are absolutely necessary to understand in all research. From a student perspective, I, I really try to focus on the idea that most of these folks are not going to become uh, researchers. What they're going to try and do is live their lives. And these skills, um, and I, I hate to diminish it to skills, but these ways of thinking and knowing and being are really practical. And the way that we've talked about before, 
you know, I've had students over the years, and this is the most satisfying thing. Usually a student out of every cohort over, you know, the course of seven to 10 years later will say, you know, I was, um, I'll give one example. I had a student who was doing immigration law in DC and, you know, her colleagues were getting really frustrated with some of their clients that were coming in. And she said, you know, I basically told them what you told me that about how we should approach this. It wasn't going to solve all of our problems. It certainly wasn't going to fix the complicated legal situation that they were in. It wasn't going to, you know, help us in a lot of ways, but it will help us gain some level of traction, some level of connection through understanding a worldview, and then we can operate out of that. And I, that to me is, you know, it's, that's, uh, you know, tearing up a little, um, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. So I don't know why I just teared up. I'm an emotional fellow. So I want to pivot a little bit and in the same way that I invited you to think about a more expansive and personal definition of communication, you also are the director of sustainability studies at Creighton. Mm -hmm. That word sustainability, I think, can be opaque and it can be co-opted in so many different ways. For your purposes, what does sustainability yeah. mean? That's, that's really important. I often wonder if it's sort of a dead metaphor and there's there's a lot of language and discourse around sustainability now that's super useful. You know, I'm sort of taken with the idea of resilience as we move, move toward uh, uh, coming closer. Well, we're in the planetary emergency, but feeling the effects of that uh, crisis. And so you're right. And, that we, you know, there's, there's too much there to unpack, but I'm, I'm aware of that. And I will, I will say that when we were talking about naming the program, we had these discussions because... It has its limits, and I think for now it's got enough purchase on the sort of collective meaning that people know what we're talking about, so to speak. Um, and the transition over the years has been interesting to watch. I think for 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 where we are right now, and as particularly for our program at, at, at Creighton, I think there's kind of two things going on. Sustainability has a long history uh, in the way it was used. I mean – in basic terms, we're trying to limit or if we can reverse the pathways of environmental degradation in as many ways as we can. We have a long history of an environmental sci uh, science program at Creighton. A lot of universities do, but uh, this one is uh, run by a um, friend of mine and colleague, Dr. Marianne Vinton, and before that, Dr. Shallis, Dr. John Shallis. And we've had a science-based approach to this. Um, we started the sustainability studies program because we understood that there were a number of students who were interested in environmental questions, but wanted to do so from a, from a more social science and humanities perspective. And so that's sort of the impulse of the program. And that is the way we sell the program based on thinking about sustainability this way. And that is while the science is telling us what it's telling us, we I'm not going to say we know the answers, but I will. And we definitely need more scientific inquiry in all of the directions that we're doing. And all of that needs to be understood by our, our students. But our uh, inhibitions toward behavior and cultural change are largely not because the science is, you know, unclear. <laughs> These are social, political, economic, governmental, relational concerns. And so 
that's where our program really focuses. We, we have interdisciplinary uh, faculty in uh, sociology and anthropology and theology and um, philosophy and communication and art history. And if I'm forgetting anyone um, and they get that sense, but they're also required to take some undergraduate work in uh, natural science as well. So one perspective is that social human side to figure out how to problem solve when the evidence that we should do so is clear. And even the economic arguments are are often straightforward. They're often not, but a lot of times there is, it, it depends on how you define the scale of the economic question. And then the other way that we're really focusing in this program is the class I mentioned, which is to uh, look inward. Um, a lot of sustainability work is at the international, national, regional policy level, as it should be organizational work, trying to have communities and businesses and nonprofits and governmental agencies change their practices. And at a Jesuit university, we have the absolute value and benefit of having uh, students go through a process of asking some tough questions on their own. And, and my perspective on that is that while it doesn't have the large scale impact, it creates more people available to deal with the tough questions. And so that's sort of how we're doing it. Um, I didn't answer your question about a definition um, <laughs> about what, what I think sustainability is other than those, you know, the pathways. But for now, that's a, that's a useful way to characterize it. In your bio, you mentioned um, developing a socio-ecological model of the Sandhills, relating across disciplines with theology, biology, and communication studies. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if that might be a, a good example of a, a project you could share a little more about to breathe life into the definition of sustainability and, and how this work is being applied in, in the real world. I think so. I mean, I think it was certainly a motivating force for us. Um, the three of us had come together on a number of projects at Creighton related to the academic programs. And we, I mean, generally, I mean, we actually wrote about this. The story goes, we had a few margaritas and thought we should do something together. And then on Monday, we kind of regretted that we had decided to do that um, because it was really unclear what we were up to. But the two colleagues, Dr. Vinton and Dr. O'Keefe, are, are, I think we're similar in some ways. We're, we're a little unsettled and sort of seekers in our own positions. I don't know. That's, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that characterization. And we were all drawn to this place. Partly because in, um, Dr. Vinton is from there. She grew up in Central Sandhills. So we, we set out to do something, to sort of study a place from three perspectives. And at one time, those projects were largely intermingled. Um, and, and now they've diverged a little bit, but not totally. And so, for instance, um, John O'Keefe was putting together this film. It's a beautiful film called The Last Prairie. And it's really these vignettes of folks who uh, are encountering or live in or, you know, have been through the Sandhills and sort of characterizing even there's a, there's a story of indigenous people and new uh, comers and ranchers. And it, it, it sort of characterizes and humanizes these, the, the place from these vignettes. And it's beautiful. Dr. Vinton is studying ecology in a number of ways, some biodiversity studies. She's had students out flying drones, um, looking at vegetation cover across the dunes and the wet meadows. And we, I mean, there's, there's more to say there. Cause it, I mean, the Sandhills is really hard to talk about as a subject because it is, 
it's so interesting and so complex. So, um, and then I've been interviewing ranchers and the, 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 the big idea here is that in environmental literature and sustainability literature, there is a, there's just an enormous intense effort to try to understand social and ecological systems and to put those two things together on the right scale. There's philosophy literature that really uh, struggles with, you know, definitions of humans as nature or humans in nature or humans and nature. These are really big questions. Our main argument is that you can't understand that place if you don't have some sense of the geology, hydrology, and ecology and the way humans are both shaped by that and shape it. You know, ranchers and ranching have been going on there for a while and it's a delicate balance. And as a prairie system, prairie ecosystem, um, you know, my colleagues will tell you this is, this is unique. It's one of the biggest contiguous prairies in the Western hemisphere, maybe the world. In terms of its biodiversity, it's at a rate that's quite low compared to even restored prairies. Um, maybe 6% non-native species that you'd find if you were to go out across so it's really this unique thing, and it's also a place where ranchers have learned to live within those limits. And I, you know, there's issues with that statement, but at least in this regard to the ranching practice, the uh, desire to not shape that landscape, or actually the 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 way that the landscape prevents its shaping, it's sort of this this entity is a really interesting thing. Now, let me go back to the question. So what I would say is we all live within ecological limits. In some places, there are people have enough resources to ignore that fact or present it's not true or just go on with their lives anyway. In most places on the globe, uh, people are painfully aware of these uh, relationships, even if there's a lot of environmental destruction in those communities. I think our project is just because of our own, our own affection for the place is to describe a place where there seems to be some awareness of the delicacy of the interaction and what can we learn from that. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool place. It's a place that it's hard to get to. I marvel at it. It, uh, it hits me emotionally every time I'm there. I think it does too for the people that live there. And at the end of the day, if we can, if we can try to describe that, maybe we have something to say about other uh, places that the interaction of humans and ecology are, need to be understood. From your interviews with ranchers, what stood out to you the most? What surprised you? Yeah. You could, from a socio-ecological model perspective, you could bring a lot of social perspectives. And so I'm an ethnographer of communication and that's what I bring. In the interviews, um, what gets said a lot is this sort of cliched phrase, take care of your grass and it will take care of you. And those people uh, who are familiar with sandhills and ranching would, would understand that phrase. And I think it would be easy to sort of dismiss that as a cliched sort of throwaway you know, phrase. What we came to understand though in the interview, and this gets back to your early question, is that I was there with a student and they were telling us this. And they were telling us this as outsiders. There was a, there was a point in the interviews in, in, in terms of the analysis of the interaction between us, the interviewer and the participants, that we got the sense that this was, a, this was not an interview anymore, but a lesson. There's something that they wanted us to understand. And there were lots of ways that, that came out. And this phrase was part of it. 
Now, the argument is not that they walk around saying this to each other. The argument is that's meaningful in some ways. And so we did some investigation into that. And there are sort of three dimensions of meaning related to that phrase. The first is care, that there's just this deep understanding of personal identity, that their purpose, their place in the world is to, is, is, uh, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but people we talk to, uh, is this care of this grassland, take care of the grass. And it's not purely economic. It's not simply because it's a food source for cattle. The second thing that came out was just the amount of intense observation. If there were disturbances in their, you know, tens of thousands of acres, they would know because they watch, they carefully watch. It's a daily practice. If you want to know what ranchers do, I think most of what they do, if you just put it on at a clock, percentage of time, it's look. And that intensity of understanding a place is really unique. I think it's really interesting. And then, um, and then the way that they feel about this. So in our travels out there, um, you can really get a sense of how things have been going with rainfall by the way they greet you at the pickup truck, what they talk about. We collected an awful lot of uh, stories about weather and how, how much weather and rainfall sort of affect the overall, not just just an economic operation, but the sense of well-being of the community. And so that phrase, which we could sort of take as, again, throwaway, just get, gave us a, a deeper sense. And now the way to use that, I think, is if you were to go to the Sand Hills, this is not going to tell you everything for you to be there. But it would give you something. It would give you a, a window into understanding however you use that is up to you. Now, from a sustainability point of view or an ecological point of view, that's a really interesting thing to map onto biodiversity studies, hydrology data, weather data, the geology of the dunes and the, the way that the dunes absorb uh, rainfall how the vegetation cover changes from the top of the dunes down to the meadows, the way that changes what they might have available for hay or forage. And the idea is that we want to take both of those understandings and say, this is how you would understand this place of this sort of deep interaction. Um, I don't know if that's a definition of sustainability, <laughs> but that would be some things I would teach about how to understand humans and landscapes and land. What is professional for you as we've been talking about is also quite personal. I want to explore something you mentioned in your bio, which is how you and your family are coaxing the land that you live on mm -hmm. back to a restored prairie. You do not live in a McMansion. You no. went to the effort to create a home and an environment that I think mirrors some of the beliefs in life that you've been sharing as we've been talking. So would you talk a little bit more about the intentions that you've put into practice around how you live. Sure. I, I, I want to be clear that I, I'm very much on a path of figuring it out and not at a destination of I figured it out. But for personal reasons uh, that were, I mean, they're not sacred. My wife and I, we were sitting at each other in our Midtown home um, in 2017, and it was a very strange situation. You know, we're sitting on the back porch, and I mean, I don't know what was said, but in my head, what someone said was, I think we're done here. And there's a lot going into that. I just, we both had this feeling that this wasn't 
the final destination for us. And it had a lot to do with feeling like we needed to be outside more. I mean, in very simple terms, uh, we wanted our family outside more and there are all sorts of, uh, it's, it's dubious. I mean, it's, it's dubious in the sense that it, you know, relates to resources and availability and privilege and all that. But we tried to make this choice about where we might be able to go that would, you know, get us closer to what we were interested in and do it in a way we could sleep at night. And so, um, uh, we're outside Omaha city limits, but we're still in OPS. So we, we are still, you know, connected to the Metro district. And we moved to a place where <laughs> at the time, uh, it was nine acres and a barn and, um, no home. And so another story about that is that we bought a camper and lived in a camper for two years uh, along our way. And I guess the thing that we're, we, we I had, um, a friend who, um, Tim Hemsath, who's now at BBH architecture, who had built two, uh, net zero homes, uh, or been involved with them as a UNL, uh, architecture professor. And I said, you know, would you help me? And this is a very long, complicated story about building and building codes, building practices, finance. Everything was hard from start to finish. But we started with the question, um, well, two questions sort of drove the house. How can we make it absolutely as energy efficient and then I'll say sustainable and make that distinction as we could. And then we just did some inter interaction design analysis. I had some background with some de design work at Creighton for some of the classes I taught. And we ask questions like, what do we want to do in the house? How is it going to feel? And so he came up with a design that we tinkered with, but it's largely, it's largely his original with one, with one notable exception. And then with regard to the land, we were interested in growing our own food a lot of the time. It's, you know, we, we don't uh, hoop house or greenhouse, but we do grow a lot of our own food in the summer. Things like composting, um, you know, we wanted to just have the capacity for that. And then it was, it was a property that had at one time been grazed. There's about three species of grass there that are all basically grazing grasses. And we wanted to try to move that towards something that would have much more biodiversity in it and do that with native ecotype prairie seeds. So that's the overall project. And I just say kind of along the way, you know, that there's a lot of choices that um, that are, that are, we struggle with. And I just, we tried to think about how to make it work that we could live with it. And also to the degree that it was possible, make the house last for a hundred years. That was the answer during the construction. What do you want to do here? What will last 100 years? And then, you know, the land, I hate to think of it in, you know, to think of it in purely productivity terms, but try to move it towards something that would be more productive in the ecosystem than Rome that needs to be mowed. I mean, on the one hand, it sounds idyllic. On the other hand, it also sounds like hell. Yeah. Um, you've alluded to having to make some compromises, like the real world forces some compromises upon you. What were some of the frustrations along the way? And, and what are these moments of joy that make you wake up in the morning? Yeah. And think this, this was everything we should have done. A friend of mine at Creighton bought me a book and I'm going to, the name, the title or the author is going to escape me, but the, the book is called A Time to Plant. And it was about this guy that converted 20 acres of brushland in Indiana to a farm. And the first three chapters were all about, you know, the love and joy and sparkles and moonbeams kind of thing. And I just thought this book's stupid. And then, it, you know, I don't remember the title of chapter four, but it was like, 
you know, depression and anxiety. And I'm like, now we're getting somewhere, you know, and I don't mean to overstate that it was, it was a, it was an intentional choice. We did it to ourselves. So please don't misunderstand that it's, it's a poor me situation, but it was really hard. And it was hard because I didn't know enough to, I knew enough to start. We knew enough to start. We did this together, but we didn't, we didn't know enough to finish. And it was really hard. Um, I mean, a couple of examples that I'll give include the building process and sort of the financing. So I think that the infrastructure for housing is really designed for um, kind of a mass market production uh, way of doing things. I understand that uh, builders and subcontractors want to do as many jobs as they can as fast as they can. The building codes here are getting better toward, you know, inherently energy efficient selections, but Largely, if you want to go well above and beyond that, you're going to have to convince your banker, your builder, your subcontractors at every step um, about, is, is this the way you really want to do that? The number of times that, you know, someone asked me, is this the way you really want to do this? And I would have to say yes. And they'd say, you know, okay. Um, I mentioned the architect, Tim. Um, we got involved with David Holtzclaw runs transduction industries to do some of the HVAC design. Cause there's a technical level of understanding about, uh, building HVAC that I didn't have. And we, we came up with a system that was really good. We tried to, at the time, the state of Nebraska had a low interest, uh, home loan available for if you met some parameters and we argued with those folks for a year. No disrespect. I know I know some of them now post that experience and that we're we're all good. But essentially it came down to they the they were interested in energy efficient homes. So we'd have been better off if we'd have built an eight thousand square foot home that was insulated well and had a really efficient uh heat pump. But when we tried to argue about we actually have a small home with an oversized HVAC system and all these other features in terms of wall assemblies and um, a, a tight envelope, they it, it didn't work for their math. And so th that had to be scrapped. The, the other thing that was really terrifying was I'm not independently wealthy. Did you have that in my bio? I don't know if you had that early. You know, we had to, we had to finagle some financing and I'm perfectly fine talking about this. So, um, but, and it was going to be, it was going to be on the edge. It wasn't ever bad, but, um, when you do a home that does not meet conventional standards, the appraisal and banking industry don't know what to do with that. And so in the end, our home appraised as a one bedroom, one bathroom or one bathroom house. Now I have two children. There are other bedrooms in a bathroom, but most of it's below grade for energy efficiency. So there was a real touch and go situation where I thought we are not going to get approved here. And it was after we had, 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 convinced everybody to go ahead. I mean, we'd had, you know, the verbal agreement. So, um, I only went to the ER twice during this period, uh, with, you know, like how heart things, not a heart attack. I don't know what happened. I had a massive migraine one time and I was really sick and nauseous, but you know, the physical manifestations of anxiety are, are real. So it was, it was a struggle all the way through. I learned so much. I've, I've often thought, man, if somebody else wanted to do this, I mean, if this was an industry where people wanted to sort of make these same or similar decisions about this, I'd really be interested. I'd also just mention, we did this after we had taken a midtown home and really ramped up its energy efficiency. Back when we were in Seattle years ago, I read a book called The Carbon-Free Home. And we, 
I mean, I, I really do think that you could make all of the same choices with an existing home in Midtown because we had done something like that. Make the same choices into trying to create a situation where your energy efficiency is really, efficiency is really good. It, you know, the interaction in the space with nature would be really good. Um, and so this, this from scratch situation was new to us and that was really complicated. In my head, I'm recalling this visual image of you describing yourself as a kid and just outside of Kansas City and uh, this experience of straddling a couple of worlds, this being keen on hunting and fishing and your, in your mm-hmm. overalls, all the coffee. and But then also you're going to a music concert as well. So you're living in these different worlds. And fast forward, you know, here you are as an academic I'm sensing a multiplicity of identities, a multiplicity of experiences in your life. And I'm just curious about how you live in harmony with what might be felt as different identities and different spaces and how you feel like you've changed mm-hmm. or perhaps even maybe come into a self-realization mm-hmm. over you know, the decades of your life. Yeah, that's the project, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I have, you know, I haven't, but, um, I do think about it a lot. Um, it is why I, one of the great virtues of working at Creighton is having access to people who are, uh, going through what's, you know, understood as spiritual direction from a religious or a secular point of view, secular, because a lot of people at Creighton aren't Catholic. Um, it's just a place where you can have these conversations and in the classroom, you know, in the class I mentioned, we, we spend a lot of time talking about this. I mean, I, I think that, um, the reminder I'll make is it's all me uh, to myself. And this is, I don't, <laughs> this is my version. I think this, but it, it's all me. And, um, you know, I think back to those days and hunting uh, and I know, I mean, hunting is fine. I, I, I stopped in my early, early twenties cause it just wasn't, it was something I liked to do with my family and my dad and he still does. And, but it, what I liked was uh, drinking coffee in the morning and then um, standing outside in the rain and just watching um, for eight hours and then going home. It wasn't the hunting part. I also think that was me back then, too. I was really just fascinated by this way people understood who they are and sort of worked through the world, as I mentioned in that earlier story, which is why it's an important story. It still makes sense to me. And this is not a solo project. I mean, my family is now deeply involved, been married recently for, you know, 22 years, the anniversary. So it's not a, it's certainly not a solo project, but um, it is something that I care about. And I think about in the choices we made over the last few years. um, And I guess the effort is to ask those questions and be fine when the answers don't come. So. That's a very, you know, <laughs> that, that answer is probably not satisfying, but, um, that's how I do it. Uh, I, I, I practice that most days, most days after dark, about nine thirty, ten o'clock, I'm outside rain, snow, the stars or a full moon or clouds or snow. I'm outside, you know, from nine thirty to 10 every night in the quiet. And, um, I'm not sure what I'm doing sometimes. You know, is it a, is it a prayer? Is it a reflection? Is it a meditation? I'm not sure, but I'm there and, um, it, it's helpful. I have a post script question just for my own curiosity. Is it hard for you to be interviewed given that a lot of your life is interviewing others and then thinking very hard 
about what was said, why, when, by who, et cetera, et cetera. Is it hard for you to sit there? I mean, I think that part of the reason that's hard for me to be interviewed and the answer is yes, is, um, I, I used to feel much more comfortable with the public nature of private things. And I don't have, uh, I don't have a huge, you know, philosophical reason for that, but I'm less so than I used to be. And, you know, speaking about any of these things doesn't, it's, it's too, uh, it, the lines are too blurred. And so I like to separate those things, but from just a kind of technical point of view, uh, I'm aware deeply that we're having what sounds and looks like a conversation. And yet we're the overhearers of this talk are important to me. So, um, yeah, I, I have a hard time sometimes just settling into, uh, those situations. Yeah. Well, the other thing to your question is, I mean, I do, I have, I have a, I feel the pandemic and if you'd have interviewed me in 2019, I would have had probably none of the same issues, but as a person who is a very public, you know, as being very publicly seen and interacting most of my career and then having that two years to figure out, Oh, wait a second. I'm not sure I liked that. And then now ramping back up, you've kind of caught me in a spot where my own sort of journey about publicness, like when we met before and I was like doing the steering committee stuff and the stuff with, you know, working on mode shift and all that public advocacy stuff. Like I thought like, that's who I am. And then when we went through the pandemic, I'm like, Oh no, cause I could do this all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about this. So this moment, and as you know, in in two years, I'll probably I, I probably would have been okay. But right now, I'm just sort of feeling it. Like, do I want to say anything? Like, you know. My guest today has been Jay Leiter. Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Director of the Sustainability Studies Program at Creighton University. Jay, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was fun. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.